Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Or think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter. John Stott was born on 27th of April 1921. And in this, the centenary year of his birth, we're meeting different people around the world who either knew him or who were influenced by him. Please join me, Mark Mennell, as month by month we explore different aspects of the extraordinary life, ministry and legacy of Uncle John. This was the other thing I found out about him. He wanted to know where he was wrong. Mm. Um, and if you could spot something in him that revealed something that he didn't know and was from the Lord, he wanted to hear that. Mm. And I just found that level of humility from mm. a Christian leader of his ilk I'd never come across no. before. That was Elaine Storkey, a philosopher and sociologist who's worked for many years at the interface between church and academy. Her postgraduate studies were on Wittgenstein, after which she's taught in many universities around the world, in the US and UK, including posts in both Oxford and Cambridge. She's published several books, many of which are concerned with issues of evangelicalism, gender and feminism, justice and Christian social action. In the 1980s, John Stott invited her to teach at the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, where she developed courses with him in Christian worldview, amongst other things. And then in 1991, John asked her to succeed him as director, and she led the institution for the rest of the decade. But I was curious to know what she remembers about her first meeting. I was a student at the University of Wales Aberystwyth, and we were about to have a big mission and um, we'd saved very hard for this mission. I'd actually contributed money for this mission. Which <laughs> as a student? As a student, That's yes. remarkable. <laughs> so we'd all chipped in, and um, I had no idea who John Stott was, except that it was somebody from London, um, in All Souls. And then he came, and it was an absolutely incredible mission. Um, but, and the talks were brilliant. But what I remember most about it was that he was quite willing afterwards, after his talks, to talk to small groups of people, inquirers and so on. And I thought, I, we really need to get in on this. I was also kind of a, a supporter of the jazz band and I had lots of secular friends in the mm. jazz band, including a lapsed Catholic and all his kind of minions. And mm. they were always out for a debate. So I persuaded them to come to one of John's talks and then afterwards to go to this very small, um, intimate conversation. And I remember the lapsed Catholic rehearsing all his arguments against God and the church and everything. And then John suddenly turning to me and saying, and are you with him? <laughs> and I thought, oh. Um, I said, no, I'm with you. <laughs> Which was But that was a surprise this. to him then. <laughs> <laughs> so were you on the organising committee? Yes, I was on the organising committee. And um, it, was, <laughs> it was a wonderful affair. We had many, many conversions. Mm. And a lot of people went on with the faith, including mm. people who remained very good friends of mine. Wonderful. So that was my first experience. What, so what year was that? Oh, it was mid-60s. Okay. So a long time ago. And then, yes, I mean, didn't stay in touch with John, but I did used to go then to All Souls when I was in London. Often took a job um, in hotels and things during um, postgraduate. I went to Canada and then came back um, and, and just kind of kept in touch in terms mm -hmm. of All Souls. Then the next big time was after, long after we got married and been to Canada, been to America and came back and John had set up the institute and... That was the next encounter. Um, so you, you, you had your PhD by then? 
Um, did I know I was still working on it then? Okay. Because I had three children. <laughs> oh. So that had been deferred. I got it during that time. Right. <coughs> was that in London? Yeah, it was a, it's a Lambeth Oxford D, uh, DD. Right. Um, so the, yeah, so I was in, we were living in London at All Souls College, where Alan was on the staff. Uh-huh. So uh, uh, then John invited me to, to teach on the long course, the autumn course. And that's when we first, I first really got to know his ministry mm. in a, a non-churchy way. Um, mm. Just know how incredibly good he was with, well, African students particularly. Mm. Uh, how available he was. He made an awful lot of his time. Just gave it as a gift to everyone. So this was, what, now we're in early 80s? Yes, early 80s now, 81. Yes. Right. Um, and, then, and then I carried on working with the Open University. I was working okay. fairly full-time with them. Um, and then in, I think it was 89, 88, they, they invited me to become the uh, director of the uh, institute. In fact, effectively, I suppose, succeeding John. And Martin mm. Eden had been doing the work in between, but John then stepped down, became president, and mm-hmm. I became the director. Um, which was a strange appointment, looking back on it, very odd. Well, maybe we can come back to that, <laughs> um, uh, particularly in terms of its strangeness. But um, so... You were already teaching in a sort of secular university yes, context. Mm-hmm. What drew you to helping with the Institute? Well, I'd always, because I'd had this history all right through the 80s of helping with the Institute and saw John's vision and saw the immense love he had for students from the two-thirds world and mm. wanting to empower them, not so that they could come and fill our ranks in the UK, but they could go back home right. and actually become Christian leaders. Um, that for me was a, a winner, and I just wanted to give everything I had to um, mm. accentuating that vision. So that was that was Plum Centre from the beginning. Yes, absolutely. Right. The ten week course in the autumn raised scholarships from all over the place for students to bring them over, um, and they were housed in Christian homes, and then they studied for ten weeks, and we really had some incredibly mm. good students, and some people who went on to become leaders in mm. their own communities, and yes. so I loved that. But I also loved the whole engagement with the secular issues in the world. I mean, that's where I was, that's where I still am. Um, It's it's my bread and butter, I've been doing it all my life. Um, In sociology? Well, sociology, I was a philosopher really. Right. My first degree in philosophy, and then sociology, Mm -hmm. and then um, theology. I was called a theologian, even though I wasn't. because people just assumed, because I had so much to say with regard to the Bible and Scripture <laughs> and God, I must so be a You just got labelled. <laughs> so after a while, I remember being described as one of the leading lay theologians in the Anglican Church um, way back in about 1981 or two or something and thinking, oh, really, am I? <laughs> well, I haven't held the rest of them then. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um, so it was just 10 weeks, it wasn't sort of rolled through the year, was no, it? No, that was a 10 week course, but there's also a summer school uh, for four weeks, and right. then there was a spring course, so I, I ended up being involved in all of them, mm. even though I had a full-time job elsewhere. Um, mm. I always found time to do that. <coughs> what sort of things were you, were you thinking of teaching then? With them? I was teaching mostly um, understanding a Christian worldview, mm. how we come to the whole of life from a scriptural position. And so I designed the course um, looking at what is a worldview. And my argument was that it's really the way a culture answers five fundamental questions. Like who or what is God? Who Mm. am I? Um, What is reality? What is real? Uh, What's the basis for morality? What's wrong with the world and what Mm. will put it right? Mm. And then we looked at cultures and the way they answered these. We looked at other faiths and the way they answered these. And then we tried to shape out an answer from a biblical perspective. 
and they caught on very fast. Mm. The students were able to start handling analysis of cultural things and realise why people clashed and why cultures clashed wasn't because they didn't agree on the facts. It was because the worldview behind the, the factual understanding yeah. was pulling them diametrically opposed. Um, so that was the, the, the basic fundamental course, but then chipped in with everything, mm. really. Um, because as a philosopher, you're just asking questions all the time. So you learn a lot of disciplines just mm. by being a philosopher. So I was able to handle... Sort of poking your nose in other people's... Did you use, ever team teach with John? Oh, yes, all the time. So how would that work? Well, we, when, when I became the director of the Institute, we would go away for weekends all over the place. Mm. So um, a, a common weekend would be the Matters of Life and Death weekend with John Wyatt John and Wyatt. myself and, uh, and John. And that, that was special because we were dealing particularly with beginning and endings of life mm. and then ethical issues during life. And John Wyatt was wonderful. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had an amazing a way of engaging with people and, and very empathetic, mm. uh, lovely to work with. Great bedside manner. Yeah, completely. <laughs> and, and really understood what would turn people on and what would engage yeah. with them and what would uh, surprise them and so on. So John and I worked incredibly well together. And then John Stott used to say he felt very out of this kind of uh, this lovely dummy approach that John and I managed to manufacture and we got into people's feelings. Then he came along with rational facts. <laughs> he felt out of it. And I assured him that uh, what they were getting from each one of us was very different. Very so. compatible. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Those mm. were the weekends. And then we had Christian Impact weekends where teams of churches in different localities would come together and arrange for us to go and visit. And John and I would split up on Sundays and preach in different churches. Uh, sometimes that was strange, especially in Northern Ireland, when they assumed that Dr. Stalky was a man mm. and then found that they were having a woman preacher in this very Presbyterian church that didn't want women Indeed. to preach. Um, and it wasn't related to the man that she was travelling with. <laughs> exactly. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, kinds of, kinds of uh, taboos going on there. Um, but um, so you did that for quite a while then? Really? Yes, yes, I did it right through the 90s. Um, wow. Left in 99, I think it was. Yeah, we were 10, it was a long, long time. And I'd been travelling with John um, all of that time. We went to Switzerland, we went to Holland, we went mm. all over the place. And he was a tremendous travelling companion. Yes. I mean, he was great fun. One can yeah. only say great fun. As a student, I found him a very solemn person, mm. a very serious person. But by this stage, he'd actually lost a lot of that... Um, intensity of seriousness. Did Africa do that for him, do you think? I think probably, yeah. And, and Latin American hugs? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean, they really kind of, and, and he had such good friends, I mean, mm. Sam, Sam Escobar and Rene Padilla, I mean, mm. they got on tremendously mm. well. And, um, and yeah, they eased him out of his seriousness. And, I mean, he was able to laugh at himself as mm. an English gentleman. Mm. In fact, there were lots of English gentlemanly things he had to laugh at and I had to cope with, um, being the woman director. So he, for him, I mean, if he was coming in for lunch at the Institute, which he did regularly, I wasn't allowed to go up to lunch and sit down until he came through the front door oh. um, because he had to escort me up the stairs and pull the chair away from the table, then put it under me so that we could sit down and have lunch together. And after a while, I said to him, look, John, I've got a perfectly good pair of legs. You know, I can climb the stairs on my own and I don't mind sitting and waiting until you come. Don't, don't feel pressured to get here all the time. And he just laughed and said, Elaine, you'll have to forgive my strange old-fashioned ways. Um, so you didn't find yourself leaving shoes out, outside the door and he would polish them for you? <laughs> Not at all. Because <laughs> there are all kinds of stories about his polishing antics. But, um, you said that the appointment was strange. What... Were you surprised? 
No, not really. No. I mean, I was I was surprised in hindsight. I mean, I was already so familiar with the Institute. And the question was, should I continue with the Open University? Should I continue uh-huh. in all the kind of secular stuff? Or should I uh, throw my weight in completely and become a director, which meant a lot of administration? I wasn't sure if I was any good at that. Right. Um, and also, um, it, you know, John was pushing the boat out, yeah. having a woman as a director yes. of his baby. And this was a something he had set up and he was making a statement by doing that. Yeah. And the statement was simply, he actually didn't care what gender the person was. Um, if they could do the job mm. and had the vision, that's the person he wanted. And you probably were more involved than anybody apart from him. I think so. Yeah. I think so. It's not so much a surprise, perhaps, for the you know inner group of people working yeah. there and so on. But I mean, there there must have been, or certainly, eyebrows raised <laughs> outside. Well, there's sometimes it was actually quite difficult. So right. The two of us went to a conference of, and I can't remember, Evangelical Clergy Conference um, at Swanwick. And um, John insisted on my going with him because he thought it was very important that I should speak in the context of his speaking, um, which was fine, except he had to leave immediately after he spoke and leave me to the lions, as it were. So wow. then I spoke after he's, he'd gone. Were you the only woman there? Perhaps? I was the only woman at the conference and certainly the only woman speaking. There was a wives' conference as well. but And some of the women came into this conference. I can't remember exactly what it was called. Oh, and a lot of time was taken up by people, these lengthy announcements and who I was and why I was speaking and all the rest of it. And I thought, can we just get on with it? Um, <clears throat> during the break, this guy came up to me and said he wanted me to know that um, he didn't believe in women speaking. And um, he, I had really no Even right though you were evidence of the fact that you could. <laughs> and, I had no, and what's more, John Stott agrees with me, he said. Oh. I thought, oh, for goodness sake. So I wasn't going to argue about that. Um, so, so why didn't he agree with women speaking? I couldn't really see that this was an issue. And, uh, and then he started swearing at me on biblical grounds. Damn you, he said, on biblical grounds. Uh. So I picked up a Bible, um, said what well, parts of the Bible in particular yes. you got in mind. And then he started swearing. Uh. Um, I don't have to justify myself to you, damn you. His punchline was, and if you were my wife, you would be at home in, enjoying yourself as a mother and a wife and not wanting to do all of this stuff. And you'd be completely content. And at that point, I snapped because he'd just sworn at me all the way yeah, through. Yeah. And I was standing there praying, God, hold my tongue. God, mm. hold my tongue. Don't let me say what I really want to say to this brother. <laughs> and in the end, I heard myself saying something like, um, well, I thank you for the observation about his wife, but I wanted him to know that my husband never swore at me. Mm. And I would be grateful if he would pay, pay me at least that courtesy. And the bloke just kind of crumpled up yes. and they wheeled him off. Um, but it was a shock, a real shock to oh. be um, accosted in this way. So was that the first time in your that role that... It, ever, yeah. ever. I'd never come across that ever before anywhere. Right. Um, and I, I suppose I understood it was those heady days before women were ordained in mm. the Church of England. And I, the, the fight was on for a lot of people. Mm. And, and this poor guy, you know, he was... He, his, all his emotions were in it and he mm. didn't know how to handle it. Mm. I felt sorry for him afterwards, but not at the time. No. Presumably, certainly in terms of people relating to the Institute and so on, people sort of came around and were well, happy. No, nobody seemed to have any problem, mm-hmm. to be honest. <clears throat> and, and that includes people in Europe as well, mm. with very conservative churches. I mean, wherever I went with John, people just accepted me as, um, mm. as having the right to be there and wanting to hear what I had to say. And um, there, there was never no, no question at all about it. So, um, obviously, you're going to bring you know, all kinds of different dynamics, background, professional yeah. 
um, interest and so on to it. How do you think in those 10 years you um, developed or, or shaped it, perhaps differently from John? I think I shaped it because I was a philosopher I'm coming from the right. angle. Um, but also I shaped it in conjunction with John because we sat and discussed a lot. I mean, he was always interested to hear my opinions on mm. something, especially if it's an issue or an area that he hadn't done any homework on himself for a while. Uh, so we'd have lots of discussions. Fairly early on, he wanted a discussion on headship mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> because that was still niggling away in his head. Had um, his um, first Timothy by, by the speech today? No, I don't think that was coming out then. Right. Um, and so we, uh, maybe, it had, maybe it had been out already. I can't remember mm. in relation to that. <laughs> but we had a long discussion of our different interpretations of, of all of the passages and mm. the scriptures. At the end of which, he seemed perfectly content and the, the issue never came up again. Mm. Um, and we carried on as, as normal. Mm. And I thought afterwards, what was all that about? Um, because he wasn't pushing any particular line. He was just wanting to hear what I felt about those things and seemed happy and off he went. Mm. Um, so I, I never found any conflict whatsoever from John. I never found any hesitation of no. any kind of sexism or anything. Mm. It was just enough. It would have been anathema yeah. to him. Um, that's not the kind of person he was. I mean, I, I imagine, I mean, I knew him a bit, but prejudice of any sort yes, was just, he, he would root it out in yeah, himself, wouldn't yeah, he? Yeah, absolutely. If he was identified. Yeah. And he was a person who wanted to root things out in himself. This was the other thing I found out about him. He wanted to know where he was wrong. Mm. Um, and if you could spot something in him that revealed something that he didn't know and was from the Lord, he wanted to hear that. Mm. And I just found that level of humility from mm. a Christian leader of his ilk I'd never come across no. before. So you could say things that were critical, not that I ever did. Although Elaine says she and John saw eye to eye pretty much on most theological issues, they were from very different backgrounds and had very different behavioural differences. So for example, she described how Stott's keenness for timekeeping and personal discipline was rather at odds with her own personality. Simon kind of person goes with the flow, and John sometimes felt the flow shouldn't be going in that direction. <laughs> there shouldn't be flow. Because <laughs> I imagine that actually, you know, I heard from some of the curates in the early days, that was really quite difficult yes. if you weren't that kind of yes. temperament. Yes, and he was quite sharp about it. And then the other thing, I think, was courtesy towards people who disagreed with you. Right. And this came out, I mean, I was a philosopher, so you were, I mean, I was used to debate, and you just went for the jugular. I mean, this has been all the way through my graduate studies, especially with atheists, you just went for the jugular. Because mm. they're going to go for yours. Oh, they will, then they carve you up. Yeah. And it was a question as who was standing at the end of the debate, <laughs> you know, and who was lacerated. Yeah. Um, so that was my normal modus vivendi, and I had to change all of that, and John was right. And it came to crisis when I wrote a, a review of a book, which was Savage, a book by a friend of his, as a matter of fact. And um, he phoned me, and I thought... It so was, had it been published? <laughs> yeah, published review. I, I was quite pleased with it. It really spotted the weakness in his argument and gone through So you nailed it. I nailed it, yeah. And I was very, very pleased with myself. Phone call from John saying, I've just read the review of the book. I thought, well, good. You know, I was expecting praise and so on. I'd like to come and see you about it, Elaine, if that's all right. Oh. The headmaster study. Fine, John. So he came over. He wanted to see me. Would would one o'clock be a suitable time and so on? That was the other thing about John. He always phoned and said, "Would it be possible for Elaine to fit me into her busy schedule?" As though I was important and he wasn't. Mm -hmm. So he came over and he brought the review with him and he started to read bits of it out. And he said, "Why would you write like this?" 
So I said, well, that's the way I saw it. And he said, but you're not going to win any friends this way, my dear. He said, All, what will happen when somebody reads that review? What, what, will, what will the mm. author think? And I said, well, he'll think that he needs to get things right and get his thinking sorted out. And he says, do you really think that? And I thought, no, I don't think that. <laughs> Believe it with me. Mm. And, and he actually said, courtesy never uh, fails. Mm. You can say all of those things in a much more courteous way, in a much more gentle way. Mm. Um, why do we have to write like this? And that's the last time I ever wrote like that. Mm. Uh, it was very important. Um, that's interesting. Mm. His humility didn't mm. stop him grasping nettles, did it? I mean, oh, he, he was... grasped loads of nettles. Yeah. And actually, I heard him be quite fierce with people in a way that sometimes I wouldn't have been. Mm. Um, but, it, but it never lacked courtesy. There was always mm. a generosity of spirit underneath it. And I think that was the important. He was never out to win the argument, which no. is what I had been in my yeah. reviews. Which is what philosophers do. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're trying to excuse me, but it was also quite rude. <laughs> and I think I think I changed a lot through working with John. I really saw the importance of actually listening. Well, I, I was always a listener, mm. but listening and looking for ways in which one could get on the same ground and then work from there. Right. Rather than just be opposition. Toppling the, the edifice. Yeah. Um, were there things that you started at the Institute um, that perhaps he was dubious about, but one round to? Or? Um, I don't think there's anything dubious. He sometimes thought that, um, was questioning whether or not I was taking on too much. Uh-huh. Because I, I took us into the University of London. Um, and that's because I had a friend who was the director of external studies. I think at Heathrock College, but I can't remember. The continuing education at the University of London. And he took me out for lunch and said... Um, uh, I, would you be interested in doing something with us? And I said, oh, I'm kind of full-time, full, fully occupied with the Institute. And he said, no, but I mean bringing the Institute in. I said, what? How, how would this work? So he then suggested ways in which it might work. We would offer a course that there would be, the university would advertise and we would get students and the university would pay us to do the course. Um, we, we would return the student fees to them, but they would pay all the lecturers mm-hmm. and for the room and all the rest of it. So we ended up, in the end, doing 10 courses with the university, diploma courses, which students could take through, and then that would be a part of their degree at the mm. university. And they went on for the whole time I was at the institute, wow. and we just added to them year by year. And it was fascinating, because um, we, got, we started with the kinds of courses that anybody might want to come to, so sociology, religion, philosophy, religion, right. ethics, and so on. So we got a lot of students from university kind of backgrounds <coughs> coming onto these courses. And then, um, then we go more and more into um, explicit Christian courses. I mean, these were Christian courses all, also, mm. but not on, you couldn't tell that immediately from the title. So we eventually get on to um, various theological courses and biblical studies and New Testament and Pauline letters and so on. And, um, and we often had conversions even through that wow. process. Um, and they went on every night of the week. Uh, and they were night courses, and there would be two or three going on at the same time in the Institute. So John's concern was that we were working 24, well, not 24, 16 hours a day. Yes. And I often didn't get home till 11 o'clock at night. Gosh. And sometimes he would phone and say, I think you should be home. So was Alan at Oak Hill then? Alan was at Oak Hill and fairly fully employed at Oak Hill. Um, And and my boys, my oldest two sons, came and worked with us in the Institute. They both were scientists, so they taught on the science course Hmm. for London University, Science and Religion. my, our, our oldest had finished his degree, our youngest was just, our uh, middle one was halfway through it. 
um, but they were very good teachers and mm. so I used the whole family and it was mm. again it was part of making sure we all stayed in touch. Mm. I mean that's a I, I hadn't realized that there was sort of yeah. official capacity yeah. like that. Yeah um, Others, I mean we did so much at the Institute I must say we um, we also engaged with Joan Bakewell we had a mm. series of programmers um, where she came and did things with us and uh, and sat upstairs in the library doing BBC broadcasting and stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a very busy institute when I wow. was there, very active. And um, but we managed on a shoestring. That was that because we didn't have very good fundraising, and John raised a lot of the funds for it. Um, I hadn't got time, although I mean I did bring a lot of money in. But there were some poor appointments made in terms of um, fundraising, and right. that, that spoiled it. Yep. Um, did you then, after 10 years or whatever, think, okay, well, I've done my time, time to, to yeah, move on? Yeah, I, I felt that the, the council needed to, the, the, the council managed the institute. They needed to kind of come on board as to what we were doing um, and what, where, where it needed to go, and it needed to be funded properly. Mm. I felt I couldn't carry on any longer wearing my staff out. I mean, mm. they, were, they were working terribly hard and they were so loyal to me that they would do that. You know, we didn't lose staff, but they were all exhausted. Mm. And looking at London salaries, I mean, my salary was tiny, but some of my staff were work, working for 16, 17,000 pounds a year. I mean, and even in the 90s, that wasn't a lot of money. No. Um, and so I just felt that it's not fair to carry on doing this. So I gave, my, gave 10 months notice and said, um, by if by this stage the, the council can't raise the funds to to pay people properly I'm, I'll be out of here and <laughs> John didn't believe me I don't think anybody believed me and he came and said you're not really going to do this are you and I said yes I am John really um, because I, I think we had held them down I mean mm. they they doubled my salary for my successor so it showed how bad it was but they couldn't find anybody to do it for a whole year mm. so it wasn't it was that sense that if this had to go, if I had visions for where the institute could go, but not on the um, on the income we had, mm. and by that stage I was doing all the um, financial work as well because the person that one of the council members had put in to so-called help me was actually no good, and um, right. and the auditors were phoning two and two or three nights before the big auditing, saying we've gone through your accounts, Elaine, it's actually it's not good. Um, somebody's going to have to get these together because you're going to fail the audit. And I'd oh. say, okay, it'll have to be me. And I'd literally stay up half the night working on the accounts and so on. And on one of these occasions, John phoned um, just to leave a message in the answer machine and got me and was utterly horrified. He said, why did you not tell me this was happening? And I said, I just, you know, I didn't want to labour it with you. I just yeah. felt that we can get through this crisis and then start a new kind of um, era. Hmm. Um, but we never did start that new era. That was the problem. Mm. And it wasn't John. I mean, no. John would have sub substituted, subsidised anything we did. But it was other council members who felt somehow or another that a Christian institution should work on clergy salaries as right. far as possible. Um, <laughs> but there were no perks that weren't with it at all. Obviously. And that actually, I mean, you hear this a lot, don't you? That yeah. Well, if you're doing ministry, then why should you need to be paid... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, and I didn't mind. I mean, I didn't mm. mind for six or seven years. But then when I talked to other people and when I saw what we, when they were aghast at what we were doing on the um, mm. on the income that the Institute had and much of which we were raising ourselves mm. anyway, um, after that, it just it just seemed right to, to hold something else. And I had other job offers that yeah. I needed to look at. So since stepping down, did you 
crossed paths with John much after that? Yes, once or twice. I mean, several times we um, met at conferences and, um, of course, at the various celebrations when the Institute mm. had an anniversary and so on. Um, and that, it was always, it was always joyful and fun. Mm. It was, it was a wonderful continuing relationship. Mm. Mm. What was your um, happiest or most memorable interaction with him, would you say? Oh, there were dozens of them. I mean, the, I think the, the fun, it was the funniest one where he's saying things that you, you're not sure if you've heard them right. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not, you probably won't want to put this on the podcast, but we were up in Cheshire, um, and the, <laughs> it's a very, very conservative church, and it said, Dr. Long's, Dr. John Storkey and Miss Elaine, no, Dr. John um, Stott and Miss Elaine Storkey will talk about sex. <laughs> we stood there and stared at this poster outside this church and John said, and I'm sure he said this, but I do hope they don't think we're living in sin. <laughs> and I thought, he can't have said that. He can't. And I looked at him, this completely deadpan face, I thought, he can't have said that. He did. <laughs> he did say it. Oh, well, that's got to stay in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, Those kinds of things mm. don't leave your memory because even now I think, did he really say that? Oh, he did. <laughs> um, did he manage to convince you to go bird watching? Oh yes, we went bird watching. So were you a, you were an ornithologist well, already? He was actually losing his sight by the time I ah, really. Um, okay. Oh, he wasn't seeing them with the clarity that he'd seen before. But yeah, we went. We had a lovely time in Switzerland. We we travelled miles and miles to to spot a bird he hadn't seen, but he knew it was going to be there. And <laughs> um, I can't remember who was who was our chauffeur at the time. And then we didn't see it. No. I mean, and we had Schloss Mrs. L or something. Yeah, it was Schloss Mrs. L was staying it. And it was so sad. I felt mm. really sad that John had not seen it. His disappointment was palpable. Yes. <laughs> but then he would have to come back. So I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and what would you say was his legacy personally for you? I mean, as you look back, um, you know, even from way back student days. Mm -hmm. I think his first his legacy was of a solid Christian um, brother, mm. um, friend, um, somebody who was totally reliable, uh, somebody who was perspicuous. I mean, uh, it was he was the same all the way through. Mm. Um, he never threw you off your guard. You knew where you were with him, um, and it, it was so reliable. I mean, mm. reliable theologically, reliable pastorally reliable personally. Um, his agenda, his single agenda, was to, to honour God, mm. um, to serve and worship God in the way in which God had called him. And, mm. and I think just knowing that there were people like that in the church, mm. um, and there were leaders like that, and that's really what we're called to be like, for me, it has been so important in my Christian life, because I've met many of the opposite, many mm. people who are not like that in Christian service. And it's just been wonderful to be able always to look back uh, at the time with John <clears throat> and know that it's possible to be like that. He's a kind of benchmark. Yeah, then. a complete benchmark. And so many other people trying to fight their corners or trying to win arguments. And um, I mean, when John was wrong, he would say so. Mm. There's another occasion where we had, um, <laughs> where we'd gone for Christian Impact Weekend in Newport in Monmouthshire and the... One of the organisers, a multi-church organisation, these weekends, one of the organisers had um, had a word from God that she had to do all the organising on her own, and so not the rest of the company. 
Um, so she did, and she devised the, the entire programme on her own, which was a really weird programme, including a lot of very charismatic people who wanted to march around the, the town and beat drums and so on. And, with um, John at the head? Or... With John at the head, yes. And so they put this to John, and John said, um, and no, he wasn't, didn't want to do this. It was, uh, And they got very concerned, but, but, but why, why not? He said, because it's mindless. <laughs> <laughs> but the real reason I'm telling that story is that she'd also decided that Rowan Williams, who was then Bishop of Monmouth, should preach at the Eucharist. And John, looking at the programme, was horrified. Elaine, he said, you didn't organise this very well, so I didn't organise it at all, John. <laughs> it was entirely organised by this said person. And he said, but what are we, why are we having this man preaching the Eucharist? He's heretical. Do you realise he's heretical? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I've not read him. I've not come across him much. Um, we just have to, we can't do anything else now. He'll have to have, he'll have to preach the Eucharist. Rowan came and gave the most evangelical sermon at this Eucharist. He was wonderful. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, first of all, he was there to welcome us to Monmouth. Mm -hmm. uh, on the Friday night, he sat and listened to John's lecture. Um, he engaged with us fully. And then on the Eucharist on Sunday morning, mm -hmm. he came and pre preached his heart out wonderfully. All the way back on the train, John kept saying, how could I have got that man wrong? Lord, <laughs> forgive me. How could I have got him oh, wrong? Oh, that's lovely. And he went over and over. Mm. Where, did my, where did this attitude come from? Interesting. Uh, what, what was it that fit into me in this way? And it was self-examination and, mm. and repentance, having misunderstood, um, unlabeled somebody who was a Christian brother. So th those kinds of things. He was the first person to acknowledge when he was wrong about something mm. and, and to ask forgiveness of mm. whoever it was that he'd wronged. And that too is a mark, I think, of great Christian biblical belief. It really is, yeah. Rowan Williams, of course, went on to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. And in fact, during the celebrations of John Stott's centenary in April 2021, Williams said that Stott would be remembered as one of the most significant Christian teachers of our time. Clearly, Elaine also highly respected John, but I wondered if there were things that she disagreed with him on. There were quite a few things, theoretically, you know, because, again, in academia, there, mm. were, there were nuances and uh, theoretical directions that you wouldn't necessarily endorse. I still think he was a bit of a rationalist um, mm. when it came to understanding what it means to be made in the image of God. Mm. For, for John, reason was very, very high, yeah. and, and I, don't, I don't think that's right. I think what we get from those scriptural passages is that, for, I mean, it's a combination of things like being relational, um, being being able to create and think imagination um, yeah all of those things mm. together um, I don't think there's one mark of um, of being in the image of God and, and if there were it certainly wouldn't be reason so I think there were issues like that where he was still very close to old classical philosophical mm. thinking that you've got from the ancient Greeks and so on so to that extent he was a reflection of his generation probably. yes entirely mm. and lots of other things were a reflection of that generation too but I mean, the, the other thing is he he did put women on pedestals. And um, so he had, you know, and some women he thought um, very highly of. So. I mean, Frances was the founder of all knowledge. Yes, she was wonderful. And, and he, and the relationship with them was was tremendous, you know. And it was funny because I got past Frances. She let me in all the time because mm. somehow or another she trusted me. Mm. I wasn't going to waste John's time. I wasn't going to do things that he didn't want. Mm. Um, and she would be very encouraging for me to go and visit him. You know, she'd say, John would be so pleased if you'd come over and have a cup of tea and so on. Which people afterwards told me that she never said that to anyone. She mm. was never pleased when people came and had a <laughs> cup of tea with John <laughs> because he was wasting his time. Mm. Um, 
So Francis was great, but there's also Eva Burroughs, who then was the head of the Salvation Army, and he thought she was amazing, and he went to great lengths to get Eva and myself together because mm. he thought it would be a good cross-section of minds and I might be able to put a Christ, um, an Anglican view of the Eucharist to her and stuff like this, you know. How did that go? It went very well. <laughs> <laughs> she was lovely. Yeah, she was absolutely okay. gorgeous. So there were all kinds of women that he really mm. admired and appreciated. There were, there were all kinds of kindnesses as well. Mm. So once I, when I've been I'm working late at the Institute and they'd phoned and found to his horror that I was still there, um, he then, about three days later, a, a letter came through the post uh, enclosing of four tickets, five tickets to go to see Les Miserables mm. and saying, um, you know, these are transposable, you can have them in, on any of these days, uh, you really need to get out with the family mm. and uh, please accept this as a gift from me. And th things like that, you know, just... Um, That's lovely. Yeah, kindnesses to show that he was just wanting you to be a full person and not just the mm. director. Of the and actually that... He, he, there's an understanding of family life there, yeah. isn't there? Oh, yeah, he was very, very keen on family life. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. And and loved other people's family lives. Yes. When we, went, when we travelled and visited friends and stayed with families, he would always say, they would say, uh, should we put John up in a hotel? And I said, if you do that, he'd be livid. I mean, he mm. wants to stay with the family. It means mm. that. They'd say, John said he'd like to stay with the family. Should we put him in a hotel? No. Mm. <laughs> and and the and families were good to him. Mm. And... You know, as long as he had his quiet time and space during the day and sometime uh, time out to, to sleep during the day, um, he loved staying with people mm. and enjoying their company. And they loved him. I mean, Oh, yeah. I mean, they were thrilled to this. I, I had a, one of these conversations with Ruth Padir oh, yeah. um, a yeah. couple of months ago and, you know, growing up basically with yeah. him as a member of the family. Quite, quite. Well, that's what he wanted. Mm. I mean, and then in this conversation that we had about marriage, that's one of the said one of the perks of not being married is that you had this big extended family, mm. and you could go and stay with any one of them, and they would mm. want you, and you had all these um, nephews and nieces, mm. and that for him was very very special, and he meant it. It wasn't mm. just a title. Yeah, he really saw people as his family. Mm. Yeah, and which is what makes him so much um, missed. Yes, and quite. So much affection around the world. I mean, it's amazing. Wherever yeah. I go, yeah. there'll always be people. Yeah, and from so many different backgrounds. Mm. I mean, you have people from academic backgrounds, theological backgrounds, pastoral backgrounds, but also quite wounded people who mm. had got a lot from John's writing or help and so on. I mean, he's he was a gentle and wise man and engaged with a lot of people. Did you ever talk with him about you know why he resisted preferment and being a bishop and all of that <laughs> stuff? He, yeah. I mean, when I was invited to go on all these commissions... Um, By the Church of England. Yeah, yeah. And I, first of all, I would always see John. I mean, the, I would be invited on the Royal Commission, the Cathedral mm -hmm. Commission and so on. And he'd say, oh, they, they, be careful they don't waste your time, my dear. Um, because <laughs> I said, well, when you were invited on these commissions, what did you say? I was never invited. They would never invite me. He said, why was that? He said, because they would know I would not accept. <laughs> um and so, yeah, he had a funny attitude towards the Church of England in that he, he was firmly an Anglican. Mm. You know, he believed that um, the structures of theology and 39 articles and so on were spot on. Uh, but there was an awful lot of time wasted in the Church of England through bureaucracy, missing the main point, mm. not doing proper evangelism, not doing proper social outreach and so on. Um, and he, he really hated that. He just couldn't stand it. Mm. So I think that um, I mean, he was approached to consider being a bishop, wasn't he? Or was well, it... I, I asked him about this and he said something like, um, 
those questions will stay with antiquity or something. I mean, in other words, I'm right. going to tell you. Yes, but, are... but say no more. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> OK, so you were then, John. <laughs> well, I think, I think that he said he would never wanted to be a bishop. Yes. He never wanted to be a bishop. I mean, he was always he was always glad when he heard of another evangelical bishop yeah. uh, being appointed. I mean, he was delighted, um, but he was also wary yes. um, that there was so much you have to give up in, yeah. in, in the case of unity in a church, which is a divided church anyway, yeah. uh, where you have to include people who are um, unbelievers, effectively. Um, mm. And he saw that as a grave misgiving. And mm. so. Which would be one of the things particularly free church people around the world would have a problem with his yes. Anglicanism, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Quite. Wonderful. Well, I think we've definitely covered a lot of ground. <laughs> for your prayers, it's hard not to come back to praying for the situation in Ukraine. And it's coming up to a month since the Russian invasion began. Please continue to cry out to God for his mercy, truth and justice to take hold of this situation. We're thinking of the many thousands caught in the crossfire or who now find themselves in occupied territories. Pray for those who are besieged in cities that are resisting. And in the midst of the chaos and fog of war, we pray for God's people to be witnesses to a different way, a life of hope and divine justice, even though they may seem very remote at the moment. And in the midst of this, we pray for them to be a light in the darkness and that many people would turn to you. We know of many brothers and sisters who've joined the resistance efforts. And we pray that in all kinds of ways, they would witness miracles that give hope to all around. But above all, please pray that this war would end and the insanity of it all to be reversed. These are beyond human capacities in so many different ways. And so we trust in God to change and transform Ukraine. Thank you so much for listening to The Stott Legacy. Thank you also to my Langham Partnership colleagues who have helped to make this podcast a reality. And special thanks to Vic Marseille from Langham Partnership UK and Ireland for all her hard work in editing and producing each episode. Please do leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, recommend it to friends, and above all, tune in next time. Until then, goodbye.